All right, so 1 Thessalonians 4, this is one of my favorites, uh, also one that I misunderstood for many, many years. So um, I don't know if you've been catching what we've been doing over the last three weeks. Now this week is four. Last week will be next week with five weeks of this theme of eternity. But let me just clue you in as to our progress here. So the first couple of weeks, we were kind of really focused in on um, what does it look like for us to, to ready ourselves for the return of Jesus. It is imminent. It can happen at any moment, and yet it is delayed uh, on some levels, right? It's been, it's been imminent, and it can happen at any moment for 2,000 years. Um, and so there's this, there's this wisdom that comes with being a wise steward, a wise servant, um, a wise virgin waiting for the bridegroom to come, right? And so that's what we looked at for the first couple of weeks of readying ourselves for the coming of Jesus. And then the last week we talked about, okay, so if though, if there's this delay in his coming, what happens if we die between like his first coming and his second coming, which so far every Christian has experienced that reality. They have died while waiting for the coming of Jesus. And so what happens um, for those people? What happens likely uh, as the Lord may continue to tarry, right? Um, what happens for us if we were to die before he comes? Well, we go to heaven if we're believers, and we go to a place called Hades or hell for non-believers. And now what, what happens after that though? So after we find our hope in Christ, after we get transported to paradise with the Lord, then what? Have you ever thought about that? Have you been thinking through, okay, so then what? Because the New Testament is riddled with scriptures that don't tell us to get ready for death. It tells us to get ready for the coming of Jesus, even in preparation for after death. So what does that look like for us, and what are we talking about? Um, I want to talk about two things, resurrection, excuse me, return and resurrection. Those are my main focuses this morning before we end on judgment and the new heavens and the new earth next week. I know that we'll be flooding in on a holiday weekend to hear about judgment, but more importantly, about the new heavens and the new earth. It is important for us to understand as believers, we will be judged as believers, but also for non-believers. And so that's coming next week. But today, I want to focus not so much on the subject of much debate. Books and books and books have been written about when and how Jesus is going to come back. Okay, just like go and search your, your, your you know, whatever on Google or your, your cable channels and you're going to find a lot of people probably making a dollar or two on an opinion on how or when Jesus is coming back. That's not a bad thing, but what I think is probably more important for us today, at least for our time together, is to focus on the that he will come back. So look, you could talk about uh, premillennialism. You could talk about postmillennialism. You could talk about amillennialism. Are these new words for most of us? Raise your hand if these are new words. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, all things that you should go and research on your own. <laughs> We're not going to do here today. You could talk about pre-tribulation. We could talk about mid-tribulation or post-tribulation. These are all like, ooh, when is Jesus going to come back? When is he going to establish his kingdom on the earth? It's millennial, this thousand-year reign that Revelation 20 talks about. It's all in the scriptures. You should devote some time to study that with your growth group or your neighborhood group or whomever. But today we're going to focus on really not so much the nuances of those different um, viewpoints, although all of them are supported by good godly people, one of them will be right. Maybe it's yours. Who knows? Most likely not. We'll all get it wrong. 
But today I want to focus on that these things happen, not when and how. And as we do that, I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, as we talked about, with return as resurrection. Return of Jesus means ultimately the resurrection of his people. This has been a passage, again, as I said, that I have misunderstood for most of my Christian life um, to mean something that it actually doesn't mean because I took the word of people that I trusted. But nonetheless, um, I am not alone in my confusion. Instead, Paul writes this particular passage that we just read in 1 Thessalonians to instruct the church in Thessalonica of something that they had been confused about. See, the big question was, is Jesus going to forget those in the grave for the church in Thessalonica? They were concerned about, yes, they're going to be with Jesus in paradise. They will be with him forever. But what's he going to do? They were deeply concerned about what happens to those that had fallen asleep. And as we read that, that's, that's Paul's way of saying, and even Jesus said this about Lazarus, that they're just asleep, he's just asleep. It doesn't mean that their soul goes to sleep like some people believe. No, instead, it is their way of saying death is temporary. And thank God it is. Thank God that death is temporary, that they're asleep. It's only a matter of time before they wake up. And so their concern was what happens to those that die before the coming of Jesus. And Paul, his focus was around our singular hope in verse 17. He says that we will always be with the Lord. So after we die, if we are believers in Jesus, no matter when or how this happens, we will always be with the Lord. That is our singular hope as Christians. So as we look at this passage, three things I want to tease out for us. First one is this. We will return to earth. Y'all listen now. We will return to earth from heaven. That's going to freak some of us out because I thought we were supposed to live in heaven forever on a cloud strumming a harp. But that's actually a Tom and Jerry cartoon and not the scriptures. And if, for those of you that are younger than 30, I'm sorry. I just aged myself. Tom and Jerry. Is it 30 or would it be 40? I don't even know anymore. Nonetheless, right, heaven, listen, y'all, heaven is not forever, at least not the one to which we go to when we die. That will not be our eternal place. We will return with Jesus in his second coming. Our souls are going to come back with Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that right there in verse 14. Let's read it because y'all are looking at me like, I don't believe you. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We will come back with him. This is, a, this is again, we're going to talk about this at the end. The bookmark of this thing is so that you have hope. And the end of it is so that encourage each other with these words. Look, this is a, a, a thing of our encouragement for our hope that we would not stay in heaven without bodies forever. That we would be disembodied souls. Remember, worshiping. Remember watching, remember wanting for Jesus to come back. This is why. This is why we're wanting Jesus to come back. Yes, that he would make all things right and new, but also because God's going to resurrect us. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But look at what the scriptures say. 1 Thessalonians 4 is one place where it says that Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It goes on to say in one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Revelation 19. If you've not read Revelation 19 in a while, we read it like all of 19 and 20 because I just couldn't quit reading in staff meeting this week. But look at what Revelation 19 has to say about the return of Jesus. I'm going to warn you, this is going to ruffle our sensibilities a bit, but really good in a good way. All right, come on. Verse 11. 
John now speaking. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I want you to hear that, friends. I want you to just let that settle in on us. He's faithful, he's true, he's righteous, he judges, and he makes war. There must be something really important that he's warring against. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are, like, are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Hey, y'all, just like 1 Thessalonians 4 said, that those who had fallen asleep would come with Jesus, and the armies of heaven, that's you and me, as we understand Revelation 19, that the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure. The good news, he will wash you completely. He has and he will again. And he will clothe you with his righteousness as this beautiful picture of white and pure linen on us. And they were following him on white horses. That's right, like Oprah. You get a horse and you get a horse and you get a horse. Way better than Oprah, however. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress wine of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And you may ask yourself, why does Jesus have ink on his thigh? Because when he's riding on a horse through the nations, it's eye level, and he wants them to know who he is. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, I want to read that for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you're a male in the house of whatever age, you need to see Jesus coming back and conquering evil. When I get stressed out, I want to watch a good guy kill bad guys. I don't know, like that's what's gone on with me during the last part of this pandemic part. It's like, dude, I just want to see Gerard Butler kill people. And I don't think that's healthy. But nonetheless, there's a part of me that is, I know what that is. It's, it's a part of me that wants God to establish justice on the earth. And I'm looking for Jesus to come and do exactly what William Wallace did in Braveheart. Except way worse. And if you don't know what Braveheart is, again, I'm sorry to date myself. I think every male, and I know female, but certainly as a male, I need to see Jesus win the war. He's not just a cuddly Hillsong Jesus that we cuddle up next to. And I love Hillsong, so don't hear me. Don't, I don't want to hear it. Don't hear me saying Hillsong's evil. I'm not saying that. But we need more than a Hillsong Jesus. We need the Jesus that comes back on a war horse to remind us of what he's capable of. Because we, we focus so much on the first coming of Jesus that we forget the full picture of Jesus. He came riding on a donkey to establish peace. He will come riding on a war horse. He came gentle and lowly and he ministered to those and he was patient with those that he allowed to kill him. He will come again with anger and wrath and judgment. And both of those things are not different people. He establishes love and justice on the earth. You can't do one without the other. We then, friends, will participate in his second coming as we ride in behind him. But y'all... 
part of me that's so conflicted when I read Revelation 19 is when I start to read what God is going to do to his enemies because if you're paying attention, your friends and your family, if they don't know Jesus, are on the wrong side of this war. There may be people in this room that are on the wrong side. So when Jesus comes back and he sees the nations and he rules them with a rod of iron, that will in many cases sometimes be some of our relatives, the people that we love at work. Lord, help us that they end up being some of our children. And so there's this mixture, right, of like, man, I can't wait for that. And then I'm like, man, I got to go and share the gospel with people. I got to pick up the mantle of responsibility and not shrink back for rejection's sake and, and actually share the gospel with the people that I love because if we know the end, and we do, Jesus wins and rebels will be dealt with. And it's our responsibility between the here and the now to make sure they know it, to make sure they know how much God has gone, uh, the extents to which God has gone to love them and care for them and secure eternal life for them. They don't walk into eternity in ignorance and in rebellion. That's on us to be able to share the good news with those that are here. We will, though, return with Jesus. And next week, we'll talk about to establish the new heavens and the new earth. But between now and then, what will Jesus do when he gets here? What's his first top priority? 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. Not only will we come back with him, but this is the thing that God wants to do first. For this, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. So, the Lord comes back. If the Lord comes back today, this is what will happen. This is according to 1 Thessalonians 4. If the Lord comes back today, this may be what happened, right? Is Jesus comes back, they're bringing our loved, he's bringing our loved ones with them. We can see this, they're in soul, they don't have bodies. And this is what then happens. We're here, and we're going, okay, this is crazy, and I don't know what's going on, but Jesus, I see you, and I'm in awe, and I'm, I'm probably going to be weeping, and, and like just snotty crying, and all that, watching you come down with people that I love, that I can recognize, but they don't have bodies yet, right? So we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. Those who are believers and are in the grave or cremated, we'll talk about it in a moment, will rise from the dead first, and they will go meet him in the air. And we who are alive are going to be like, are you watching this? And then right after that, the Bible says that we're snatched up to meet him in the air. Now, this is where I was taught all wrong. This is not the passage. Matter of fact, I can't find the passage where there's a secret rapture and we're all on an airplane and only the believers get taken up. I actually can't find that passage. So I'm not saying it's not there. I'm not saying it's legit, not a legitimate belief. I'm saying that this is the passage that I was taught that that's where that is because of the snatching up. But it's very clear, right? It's, it's loud. There's a voice of the archangel. There's a cry of command. There is a trumpet here. It cannot be some secret. Also, the dead are risen from the grave. We will notice that as if to be something pretty spectacular that only God can do. This is a part in the scriptures where I've had to rewrap my mind around what the scriptures say and relearn what it's telling us. Okay, I'm not denying the reality of a rapture. Actually, I think it's actually in here. It's just not secret. 
It's just not something that we're going to miss. We're going to see it with the trumpet, with the archangel, with the cry of command, and the dead being raised first. And then believers who are alive will be snatched up into the air to meet them. It's not going to be secret. You guys catching me on that difference? It's a very clear distinction, but an important one. It's not secret, and it's not without the resurrection of the dead happening first. Jesus will bring again the souls kept in heaven with him, and he will resurrect their bodies and reunite their bodies and souls on the way down. 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3 all speak to our ultimate hope, not of escaping this place to be with Jesus in heaven, but our resurrected bodies being reunited with our souls. Your hope is distinct, O Christian, not to go to heaven one day and play a heart, but that your body would rise from the grave. That's a very, very important distinction to every other religion upon the earth, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I want you to see this picture. Those who are alive will meet with Jesus and those who have been resurrected from the grave in the air. This word for meet doesn't matter how to pronounce it in the Greek, and that's just me uh, saying I have no idea how to pronounce it in the Greek, but it doesn't matter. What happens is this idea of meat is what happens when the Thessalonians would have read this, and they see in verse 16, I believe, right? Nope, I'm on the wrong page. Hang on. Yes, 17. Then when we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him, with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This idea of a meeting, when the Thessalonians would have read that, they would have immediately thought what they do on the road outside of a village when there's a dignitary or the emperor was coming to their town. They would have gone out, they would have left their village, and they would have gone out to meet the dignitary and celebrated the coming of the dignitary to their village. And so if you've ever been to India or you've ever wanted to go to India, here's some pictures of what happens when we visit villages in India. Are they on the screen? No, they're on their way. Are they there now? Okay. This is what happens, right? When you're on, and by the way, look at that road. I don't know if it's still yet. Look at that road. That's a long way to dance, y'all. That's a long way to dance to that village. You better get ready. It's an hour probably because you got to dance. They're coming out and they're meeting the important people to bring them back to their village to celebrate their coming uh, to bring the good news, right? So this is what's happening in India is that you will, you will ultimately be met way out on the road. You will be given unbelievably like beautiful flowered necklaces that will weigh you down. And you'll be like, holy moly, they are really happy to see me. This is heavy, but it's good. The Bible comes alive in places like India. The kingdom of God has come to places like India in ways that we miss in comfortable suburban Christianity. They see us and they come and visit us and they have palm branches or whatever palm they have and they celebrate our coming. That's the word for we're going to go up and meet Jesus and then celebrate him and welcome him back to our town called the earth where hopefully the kingdom is coming. One problem, which is why Revelation 19 is there. The place that Jesus set up where he's coming back to town is full of rebels full of rebels. And so the believers, dead and alive, go and meet Jesus. And they're coming back down to the earth that Jesus is claiming and reclaiming for himself. And it's full of rebels. And that's why Revelation 19 is so important because we are going to go be with them. We are going to be, though, also clothed in fine linen, linen, not lemons, linen. Be with him in the army. And we will come back as he raises people from the dead. And, but rebels have determined to not let Jesus have what is his, which is the earth 
and all that is in it. And he will wage war to reclaim, renew, and remake that which was lost. We'll talk a lot about that next week. But look, this idea of resurrection and coming back down to the earth should shape how we live in three important ways at least. Number one, participation. You are there. You are part of God's army. You are part of the second coming of Christ. You are a participant in this war amongst the rebels, right? You are there to, to meet him, to participate with him, and to dance and to celebrate his coming, meeting him in the air with your resurrected body or your glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 says that those who are alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So on our way up, God's going to remake our, mod, our bodies somehow if we're alive when he comes. But look, God's people were once sent into exile for 70 years into Babylon. If you know your Old Testament or you're doing any reading uh, through the o- Old Testament, you know that there were 70 years of exile in Babylon. I want you to just imagine yourself as an Israelite, say in like the 700 B.C., 500 B.C. era, right? And, and all of a sudden you're an Israelite during that time and you're able to worship in the temple. You, you have a God-appointed king. You, you, your nation is governed by the Ten Commandments. Let's just start feeling familiar you got a utopia set up where things are moral and good and right. And then all of a sudden you realize, actually you don't realize, the prophets have come to tell you, you got it all wrong. You may have set up a utopia, but you have forgotten God. And so God is going to judge you. And what he does is he lets your sworn enemies, the Babylonians, come in and ravage your nation and your people. And when the Babylonians come, they take all the dignitaries, they take all the important people, they take all the officials, all the governors, all the people that are running stuff, and they take them back to Babylon. And they leave the poor people that have never had anything to just forage through the nation. So they take all those people back to Babylon, and, and, and what do you think God tells those people in Babylon? Hey, just, you know, bear down. This will all be over soon. No, he says for 70 years, you're going to go into exile. And in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, he says basically this, go and find a way to serve and seek the city. See, what would you do if you were an Israelite sent into exile? And I think we know this, what we would do, by working at a job that we hate. Have you ever worked at a job that you've hated? Anybody? Yes? All right, perfect. See, look, hey, look, all the, everybody, like, raise your hand if that's you. You ever worked at a job if you hated? Hey, teenagers, preteens, look around. This is every adult in the room, y'all. You have, you like, you, this is part of life. You got part of growing up, going through, being forged through the fire. is getting a job that you hate and doing it anyways, right? Now, what will you do with that job that you hate, with that boss that you despise? If you're just there to bear down, you got one eye on the clock. Five o'clock's coming. And you don't really care much about your performance as long as five o'clock comes. And my fear is that we somehow have our eye on the escape of this place instead of being all there just like the Babylonians, right? And so Jesus, or God in the Old Testament, which definitely includes Jesus, says to the Israelites in Jeremiah 29.4, this is what he says about what it looks like to go into exile. He wants to participate in the resurrection and the renewal of all things. Jeremiah 29 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the seek the welfare, peace, human flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What am I saying in all of that? 
if you're constantly looking to escape this world, to go to heaven, you, have, you run the risk, you will likely not see how God has put you here right now for a purpose to renew the earth. If you are focused on a rapture, a secret rapture, I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but if you're focused on that, instead of resurrection and renewal, you will likely, you could, miss taking hold of eternal life right here and right now. You'll get your job done, but you won't enjoy it. You'll run your race, but you'll complain the whole way, and you'll find a way to grumble and argue and complain and gossip all the way to the end. Because we're not seeking the welfare, the peace, the shalom of our city, much less our people. If heaven is our hope, we'll look to escape our responsibility to join God in the renewal of all things, to establish justice, to fight for the marginalized, to defend the weak, to steward our resources, to build the kingdom in the here and now. We will lose sight of the priority of pursuing personal holiness and public wholeness with God, who has come to save the whole person, body and soul. So let us not think to ourselves, Jesus will sort this out in the end, and I can't wait to get there. We should be looking forward to being there. But Jesus put us here to be beacons of hope, to be embodied souls who are certainly embodying the story of God. He has put us in this Babylon to build his kingdom, to multiply, to seek the welfare, the flourishing of this city. And so my question is, how will we participate Let's look heavenly, but let's work earthly. First, that's how this resurrection helps us understand what God wants us to do. He wants us to participate, to join him in the renewal of all things, because he's going to come back and he's going to make it all new. Secondly, what it does for us is that it changes how we view our body. Body image is all the rage these days, right? But for the Christian, this should be something different. Our bodies are not evil or something to escape from, certainly not to discard as something unimportant because God is going to prioritize the resurrection of our bodies when we return. He will renew our bodies from imperishable to perishable. This is all in 1 Corinthians 15. From decay to glory, from weak to powerful, from earthly to heavenly, from the image of Adam to the image of Jesus, all not in our souls but in our bodies, from mortal to immortal. And if God cares about our bodies that much, how much more should we care? 1 Corinthians 6 says, or do you not know that your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you, for whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. It should mean for us that a little temple maintenance is important. It should help us understand why during the pandemic, if you've watched or understood anything, even the things that we've put together for mental health, is like the, one of the first things we got to do is take care of our bodies so that our minds can get sorted out. God has created us body and soul, not just a soul. And we spend a lot of time thinking about our souls and not a ton of time thinking about our bodies, taking care of our bodies. Why most mental health uh, programs will start with what? Exercise and diet. Our bodies are certainly uh, going to be a governor with how we're doing mentally and spiritually. They are tied together and they matter. Our spiritual life will start to take off when we start to care for our body and our body will start to flourish when we start to think of it as God's dwelling place. So that's the second way. Number one, God wants us to participate in this 
beautiful process of resurrection and renewal. Number two, he wants us to see our bodies as the temple of the living God. So we need to glorify God while in our body and with our body. And then the third way that resurrection, being Jesus' top priority, is important for us, is in planning for death. Most of us are like 40 and under in our church. We don't think about planning for our death, but we should. And I have this conversation with usually older people. Should I get buried or should I get cremated? You ever think about this? I think about it, and maybe that just makes me an old soul. I'm not really sure. But like, what should you do? Some things to kind of think through, because if you're not thinking about this now, you will soon, right? Ultimately, you have to answer the question. It is not prescribed in Scripture. I want to be clear. This decision is not prescribed in Scripture. It is, however, a matter of freedom and a matter of understanding. And so considerations, right? Will you, will you be practical? So like for me, um, I kind of waffle on this just personally. Like one day I could go with I'm going to get buried, and the other day, next day I'm going to go with I'm going to get cremated. Um, I kind of waffle on this, and it's really around this practical question. Like what's cheaper for my family? Right? And, and here's what I found out is that in, in further research, you can actually find um, or you can actually uh, purchase uh, a burial plot that can be cheap, and you can also do a burial that can be cheap without all the, like, you don't have to have a casket. I just recently found out. That's a lot of money. And it, but the problem is it's going to ruffle the feathers of those that are at the funeral. Because we don't like to see that reality. But if I'm being practical and I'm thinking that's the best thing about my family is just how much does it cost, then I probably want to do without that. That's, it's an option. It's all I'm saying to consider. It's not just practical about price, but that's an option, right? So that's one. Eventual, like eventually, cremation speeds, speeds up the process, at least as far as I know, speeds up the process of oxidation, and eventually you turn into carbon matter, and you are spread upon the earth, whether it's through life cycles or through someone spreading your ashes over the ocean or wherever it may be. You're still spread out over the earth. Another consideration is spiritual. And this is one that I've recently just started to come back around to, is that Jesus was put into a tomb. He was buried. And so some basic symbols of our faith are about being put into a tomb. About Like baptism is this symbol of being buried into a tomb and raised to life. So how much more then would our death be a symbol of what God is going to do and what he has done? We were dead and we will be alive. Talks a bit again and again about the grave. And then finally, this criminal idea that I think about, right? Back in those days, it was, very, it was a pagan practice to burn a criminal's body. It was also in the Old Testament that they would burn uh, like Achan and his family. They burned up their bones because they had sinned against the Lord as one uh, with final punishment. But here's the deal, right? That it was also criminal for a crucifixion to happen. So it's not just about what criminals endured or those that had broken God's law endured. We've got to consider at least these four things. But no matter your choice on cremation or burial, the resurrection has deep implications for us in the here and the now. So what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? This, friends, is where we find our hope. Not in our decision on cremation or burial. Not in um, really anything that we can do but in the sure and steadfast words of Christ, of God's word. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and then 18, it starts with these bookends of hope and encouragement. I want to read them for you again so that we can realize this is a distinctly Christian hope that we have. 
Why is this encouraging? Because only Christians have this kind of hope. Only you, if you believe. Don't take this for granted and think, and this is how the whole world thinks. And I'll give you an example in just a minute. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, and then 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have, who have gone asleep, who are asleep, that died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. If you grieve without the hope of the resurrection of the dead, we have no hope. And then in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. I don't know about you, what you've done uh, with your free school days that you had this last week, but my wife and I, uh, we didn't binge watch, but we came close uh, to watching the world's toughest race. We actually finished it last night. Thank you very much. I know it's a big accomplishment. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, but we, we watched the world's toughest race on Prime. Anybody watch this? Oh, man, come on. <laughs> Ellie's like, me. Bear Grylls, right? They're doing this eco challenge in Fiji. 66 teams start and only a few finish. And it's legit. It made me do a backflip into my pool yesterday because I just wanted to feel alive again. It wasn't my pool, just as an FYI. Let me just, let me just clarify the one thing that's wrong, not my pool. But the world's toughest race, one member of one team, and this is the sad part, right? One member of one team brought ashes from one of his children which had died. And, they, and, and in hope, his hope was he could spread these ashes over the river in Fiji and their child would experience Fiji. And that one day they would come back after racing all over the world and they would spread ashes all over the world. One day he would come back and visit his child in Fiji and in wherever else that he would race. And it was so sad for so many reasons. And I wonder what our reaction is to something like that. Is it sentimental? We go, oh, that's so cute. I, I almost wept just watching it because, my goodness, this young father was putting all of his hope in being able to, 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 to like see the earth and for their son or daughter to see the earth and experience all that this life had to offer. And that is not a hope at all. The hope with which we have as Christians is to see that, to grieve. We should grieve when death hits us, when it surprises us as it does again and again, week after week. We should grieve deeply, but we should do it with a hope that this is not the end. And nor is, is our hope in, in putting our ashes on, on, on the earth but in experiencing that Jesus and believing that Jesus will raise us from the dead where we are spread out in ashes over Fiji or buried in Richmond. God will come back and he will make things right. The Christians, we Christians, have a hope that no others have. I think about the scriptures in old times, right? The Egyptians, what they believed, if you, anyways, the Egyptians, what they believed, when you die, you go to an underworld where you have to prove yourself Worthy of the acceptance of the gods. For the Greco-Romans, the immortality that gods would lend you would only happen if your god or goddess accepted you, that you did the right things with the right attitude. For an atheist today, when you die, you're done. You go to the grave and you're eaten. And that's it. For agnostics, they put all their hope in the ability to hope. And there's no hope in that. For the Hindus, they believe in reincarnation that no one has ever validated and is an endless cycle of life and death. You are trapped forever in that cycle. For Muslims, they believe in an afterlife if God would accept their pilgrimage as worthy. For the Buddhists, they believe in a karma. Y'all, karma is not Christian. Quit using it. Karma is not a part of the Christian vocabulary. They believe in karma... 
and a nirvana, and it is a cycle of reincarnation based on emptying yourselves of desires. Good luck with that. And all of these are based on whether or not you are good enough, consistent enough, performed enough, with a good enough attitude. But we, friends, have a greater hope, a distinctly Christian hope. It is based upon the sure and steady word of God. Listen now, based on God making payment for your sins through his son Jesus and the evidence which he has given us through the resurrection of Jesus. You want to know why we have this hope? Read 14 again. Okay, good. You were hoping I was going to do that? Perfect. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, our hope is founded in a very evidential historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead. No other religion on the planet, not one we make up, not one that gets systematized, not one that just makes up ourselves as God, has proof of eternal life just like we do in Jesus. So when we celebrate Easter, it's not just about like, oh, that's real fun, let's get to the eggs. It's this is the thing that points to our ultimate hope forever and ever. It's the only thing and the best thing that we rejoice in as Christians, not any of this other stuff. So you want to wonder why I get worked up and passionate about things like karma? It's because it's not Christian. That our hope is found in the resurrected Christ, the ascended Jesus, reigning and ruling from the right hand of the Father over every tragedy that we could ever endure. What I love about the world's toughest race is that every single one of them, they go, I don't know why I want to do this. All I do is suffer in this race. But it's a great test of our ability. It's a great test of who we are that we may suffer. We choose to suffer for the greater goal of finishing the race. Friends, that's us. That's us as Christians. We choose to suffer knowing that the end of the race, God is going to greet us and say, well done, good and faithful servant, if we stay the course in the race that God has set out for us. And we do that with the hope of resurrection, and nothing less will do. Y'all got me fired up today. This resurrected king, Jesus, is coming back. He will judge good and evil. And y'all, his judgment will be perfect. Perfect! Not just good, absolutely flawless. Death is not the end. Our bodies matter to this resurrected king. And what we do in our bodies matter to God. We get to play a role in the second coming of Jesus. And we are playing a role now by participating in, with him in the renewal of all things. Seeking the welfare of Richmond, Sugarland, Katy, Rosenberg, Texas. This is the call of the Christian, y'all. To live resurrected lives here and now while we look for the resurrection of the dead. And it's that story that we rehearse again and again and again, week in and week out, but particularly when we do communion. And so as we move into a time of, of sacramental memory, and what I mean by that is like this is a sacrament that God has put before us so that we remember what God has done for us. As we move into that time, I want to remind us, this is no small thing. I want to remind us that if our kids are not ready to remember appropriately through communion, it's all right to sit them out and to explain to them why they're watching. We're not sure where you are, sweet girl. We're not sure where you are, young man. And until you come to know Jesus and can rehearse this story from your heart again and again through the participation of the bread and the wine, which today is just, you know, it's, it's just a little bit manufactured, right? 
All right, it just is, right? We, we like to do the matzah and the like, fresh crackers and the wine and the juice, but this is a time we're going to set those preferences aside, and we remember as we can remember. And so if you're online, go get the juice and the crackers or the wine at 11.10 on a Sunday. You can't go buy it. Nonetheless, get ready, right? Because this is our time as Christians to do something unique as we rehearse the story of forgiveness. We rehearse the story that Jesus hasn't forgotten about us, whether we're dead or alive, and that he sees every ounce of pain, every nuance in our life, every difficulty that we endure, and he says, me too. Yeah, me too. I've grieved. I've longed for things. I had hoped. You know, it's exactly what we're going through, and that's the story that we rehearse in communion. So when Chris and the rest of the band come up, they're going to sing for us, and as they sing for us, uh, we're going to be given communion, right, supplies. So I think it's Bethany and Amy that are going to come around to where you are, and they're going to give you what you need for communion. Again, take that, and um, I'll come back up when they get done reading or when they get done playing, and we'll take communion together as a family. So take it and wait, sing, participate, and then we'll come back at the end, and we'll do this together.